0: This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Glenn Lowry. Glenn is an economist, an essayist, and is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences and professor of economics at Brown University. During our conversation, Glenn talks about his upbringing in the south side of Chicago, his goodwill hunting-like trajectory from inner-city black urban life to receiving his PhD in economics from MIT, and his becoming the first tenured African-American economics professor in the history of Harvard University at age 33. Glenn discusses the ideas in his class, Free Inquiry in the Modern World, and his article, The Case for Black Patriotism. He also provides an emphatic defense of Western civilization and Western values, speaks to what's beautiful about America, why it matters in the world, and why maintaining doubt is crucial to an examined life. Glenn is a descendant of slaves. He's also one of the US's top intellectuals and has lived the American dream. What I admire most about him is his independence of thought His willingness to affirm his beliefs, especially when they're unfashionable, his decency and his humanity, and his clarity on the importance of appreciating and honoring our cultural inheritance. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry, uh, it is a huge honor uh, to have you on the show. Um, It's wonderful to meet you. Thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Dan, you got it, man. No problem.
0: Thank you. Um, I've done a decent amount of research for this conversation in the last day or two. And I thought Peter Robinson put it quite well in one of the interviews that I watched about your life story and that you have traveled. And I think he meant that that you've traveled physically in the country, but your story is a a really amazing one. It, It reminded me to some degree of the Goodwill hunting story as i got more into your <laughs> biography in some ways in that yeah you know yeah. you, 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 know, you I, first of all i just love trajectories like yours and i'd love to give a little bit of time to the listeners to learn about your upbringing because your credentials are absolutely amazing but it doesn't seem like you came from an environment where many people in that world were launched to places like MIT and Harvard Nobody um, was. What is that story? How do you make sense of how you became who you are? Uh, and what were the the details that you think really matter about your upbringing that still resonate for you today? That's such
1: a big question. I mean, you you mentioned uh, Matt Damon, uh, that character in Good Will Hunting. I can remember the scene where he goes up to the blackboard stuff. Yes. You know? I mean, he solves the equation. <laughs> And I was kind of like that. I was a precocious kid. I was always good at math. I learned how to play chess when I was like 10 years old. I learned how to use a slide rule. I knew what a logarithm was and stuff like that. When all the other kids were just learning their timetables and stuff, yeah. I was just always good at math. And I had a scene like that when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern. <laughs> I was this kid, just like the Damon character who came from this world. I mean, his was Irish Boston. Mine was black Chicago South Side. That didn't know nothing from, you know, uh, any kind of uh, technical, you know, thing like that. And yet I found myself out at Northwestern, uh, bounced around, but I finally landed with a scholarship uh, at Northwestern, transfer student. And I was, you know, I was taking real math and, and you know, real, uh, you know, uh, I didn't do much science. I did math and I did social science, but I did, you know, I did hard social science, uh, operations research type stuff and uh, economic theory type stuff. And I was just good at it. So um, I got lucky. I had some amazing teachers at Northwestern. Actually, I had an amazing solid geometry teacher in high school uh, who who taught me that you could take a cone and pass a plane through it. And whatever was traced out in the plane from the intersection with the cone was going to be a second order polynomial. And that you just it was a question of was the plane parallel to the axis of the cone? Was the plane perpendicular to the axis of whether you got a hyperbole or an ellipse or whatever? I mean, now when I saw the beauty of that, you know, uh, so this, you know, I, I had some good teachers and um I I was I was driven. I, you know, I didn't want my dad to think of me as a failure. It's a long story. It's a long story, Dan.
0: Yeah. Well the the you've already mentioned this that you grew up on the south side of Chicago. I think in the 50s, if I remember 40s and 50s. Yeah, I was born in 1948. What what was the culture of that part of Chicago like at that time when you when you were growing up in in your environment specifically?
1: Well what I remember, we were okay. I mean, my Uh, mother's family had migrated from uh, Mississippi in the early part of the 20th century, and they were pretty well established Hmm. in Chicago by the time I came along in 1948. I mean, my mother had aunts who were property owners and ran small businesses and things like that. Uh, And I grew up in a neighborhood that was really okay. I mean, there were lawns in front and fruit trees in the backyard. We had barbecues and, you know, people took care of their lawns. Uh, But uh, it was hip. You know what I'm saying? Dizzy Gillespie, you know, (laughs) Duke Ellington, you know, Charles Mingus. You know, I mean, uh, it was it was hip. People wore do rags. They played dice. Uh, They had writ parties. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, they drove snazzy cars if they could afford to. They dressed to the nines, man. You know, it was hip. Uh, It was a little sketchy. (laughs) (laughs) If you wanted a suit, you either went to, excuse me, Jewtown. And I'm sorry, but that's what they called it. Okay, I'm you know, I'm just telling you what they called it on Maxwell Street. And you bought a suit off the rack over there or (laughs) Uncle Clarence had a whole closet full of suits because the guy that had hijacked the suit truck offloaded 50 suits to Uncle Clancy. and you could get one for, you know, <laughs> it was like that. Uh, there were a lot of really smart people. They, they just weren't particularly focused on, you know, on the legit, on the legit side. Um, so I, I was a weird kid uh, coming up because I was, you know, <laughs> introverted, bookish uh, and and brainy you know, I was yeah. a smart alecky kid.
0: Yeah. And the, because I know from, from reading your biography, my understanding is you didn't go straight to Northwestern, right? There was a meandering road that led you there. Did you get messages when people started realizing, like you said, that you're an introverted bookish precocious kid, that that was even an option for you? What was, what, what was the you know turning point that led you into this totally other world of Northern Chicago academia, and then eventually to Boston.
1: Yeah. So I graduated high school at 16. Like I said, I was a bright kid and I got a little scholarship to go to the Illinois Institute of Technology, which is the local engineering school in Chicago. And I enrolled there, but (laughs) I was 16 years old. You know, I was a precocious kid. I, I was bookish, but I hadn't, you know, really hung out that much. I didn't have girlfriends and things like that. I, you know, so rather than go to class, I, I kind of started hanging out and having girlfriends and stuff like that. And my girlfriend got pregnant. And in at that time, in that world, I mean, it just wasn't, you know, we didn't abort this pregnancy. I mean, it just wasn't done. Yeah. You know, I mean, people probably did it, but it was illegal, first of all. And, and you know, and I, I'm very, very, very happy that, uh, you know, the people who exist now, uh, my children who are in their 50s. Mm. Uh, who uh, came along at that inconvenient time in my life when I was 18 years old, you know, uh, are here in the world because they're magnificent people and their children are magnificent people. This is not a political speech. I'm not making an argument <laughs> for or against anything. Don't get mad at me. Anybody out there who's listening, don't get mad at me. But I'm just saying, so, you know, I had to drop out and I had to get a job. Mm. So I started working at R.R. Donnelly and Sons, which was the Lakeside Press, which was a huge printing production facility, multi-plant. They must have had like 15 different buildings Uh, and they printed telephone books and they printed uh, uh, Sears catalogs and they printed uh, uh, high-end magazines like fortune and time and uh, sports illustrated and whatnot. I mean, I, you know, I learned a lot about printing. I learned because this was a day when you actually had printing. It wasn't all electronic. You had physical plates that had to be etched you know, by an engraver. They were really people who did this and they made good money too, man, uh, engraved these plates. And there were huge rolls of paper that would go on the back end of these massive monstrous dinosaur looking machines, which were these printing presses. And there were crews of people. It was noisy. It was dirty. It was, it was gritty. Uh, and I, I signed on there as a clerk. I dropped out of college from uh, IIT and I signed on there as a clerk. And I worked my way up the clerk ladder to where I was like, you know, a supervisor clerk. Yeah. But that but that's what i do. And in the little office, they'd have a, a wooden shed in the middle of the massive thing that's going on. And in there would be a guy with a clipboard. <laughs> you know, that would be the guy. To, and, and I was his assistant, keeping the cards, the IBM punch cards that you would <laughs> with the data about the worker performance and the cost allocation to the different jobs and things like that. That's what I did. And I, I figured out, you know, there wasn't any future in that, and I need to get myself back to school. So I, start, I went to junior college. I went, I, I at, you know, I had a family now, and another mm-hmm. kid came along, and we're married, and uh, living in one of these government-subsidized uh, uh, apartments in a the, in the new building that was built uh, uh, near the University of Chicago, actually, mm-hmm. uh, near where the Obama Presidential Center is going to go up right now. But and we were living in that apartment. Hey, my, my young wife 16 years old. You know, I mean, come in, it was crazy, man. It was really crazy. And these kids. Uh, but I had a good job. It was it was the height of the boom of the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, man, I was making six, seven hundred dollars a month in 1967, which was not that shabby. It was enough yeah. to pay the rent, you know, keep up a little vehicle um, and, and get to class at Northwest. I got discovered. At the junior college, at the junior college, there was a man named Mr. Andres. He was a Greek American engineer who had retired from, uh, you know, uh, the private sector and who was teaching in this community college just to make ends meet and to keep himself busy. Man, I would say in his late 50s, early 60s. And um, he, he was teaching a calculus course. And I just loved I loved the integration and the differentiation and the formulas and the the factoring and the substitutions and the, you know, how it would all come out. The area under the curve and everything. I mean, I just loved calculus. I was really good at it. And he said, "Man, what the fuck are you doing at this community college?" (laughs) Excuse me. I don't know if your audience can tolerate that, but I mean, that's what he said. He said, "Yeah, what the fuck are you doing at this community college?" So he was a Northwestern alumnus. And he he hooked me up. He recommended me to the people at Northwestern who it was 1969, 1970. They were looking for black kids to admit who they thought, you know, would be a good bet. And so they gave me a full ride. And I enrolled out there and I started, to, you know, that, that's when I really started getting serious. Uh, I mean, it was a whole new world. I had no idea. I started getting serious intellectual challenge, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, okay, Uh, in mathematics, you know, it was like, let's have the foundation of mathematics. You know, what is a number? What is an integer? Well, you know, prove to me uh, uh, that that A plus B equals B plus A. Don't just say it seems like it must be true. Tell me what the axioms are by which you are defining the, the actions of addition and what is a number and whatnot. And then show me that A plus B has to be equal to B plus A. And I just thought that that was like, That was amazing. I took probability and statistics, measure theory and stuff like that. I took uh, uh, differential equations and it wasn't just solving the equation because I already knew, you know, if I had a linear differential equation, it was going to be an exponential. And I mean, I could, you know, it was like the existence of a solution in general to a differential equation where X dot equals F of X, (laughs) you know. And what do you have to say about F such that you can show that there has to be a function X of T that satisfies the relationship? X dot T equals F of XT. And, and I, I just loved it, man. It was just like, it was amazing. It was, it was uh, a whole new world, a whole new level of, of thinking about stuff. I wasn't a mechanic anymore. I was becoming, I don't know what, a designer, an engineer, something like that, when I made that move from the community college uh, out to Northwestern. Uh, I also had a really strong education in philosophy um, and in economics, uh, you know, I read Karl Marx, I, I read Friedrich von Hayek, you know, I, I read I read all these uh, these guys. I read the, the French guys because it was close to the Algeria war. I read uh, Fanon. Uh, I read Camus, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it was a serious education in in, in the, the Western tradition i mean we there was it was unabashed it was only it was early 1969 so they had not yet figured out that the west was you know uh hey hey ho ho western civ has got to go they really believed in western civ. <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. i got introduced to economics and that's where that's where my my I, I I wanted to be a mathematician when I when I first fell in love with mathematics, but I wasn't good enough. I I decided at the end of the day to really do creative, uh, frontier uh, research in mathematics. Hmm. Uh, but when I found economics, and it was in the '60s, you know, early '70s, so the social stuff was going on—Vietnam War and uh, Black Power and civil rights and all of that. I wanted to be in touch with the world. I didn't want to be in an ivory tower. And when I found economics, which would allow you to do uh, really kind of uh, r- rigorous applied mathematics, but it would also have a whole range of questions about policy and politics that were on the table, um, I fell in love again, and and I decided to go to graduate school in economics.
0: Yeah, the that the trajectory there is is absolutely amazing. And I, I'm wondering for yourself, I mean, now kids are so marked from an early age and we we attempt to identify talent so early. I'm wondering for yourself, when you got your girlfriend pregnant, I think you said you were 18 years old. Yeah. Did did you get the sense that this was going to potentially sideline you? Like did you have a sense that you had this innate talent and that you could be on this trajectory into this other world and this could sideline you? Or was that Not really a thought in your mind at that time.
1: No, it wasn't. It was early. I mean, they identified me when I was in grade school as a really bright kid. And at sixth grade or something, the teacher recommended me for a scholarship at the University of Chicago Laboratory School. Hmm. And, And I would have gone over there had I gone over there into that world. You know, this is the prep school that is maintained at the University of Chicago. And it's mostly faculties, uh, kids, and, and whatnot. It's Hyde Park. Uh, and it's a, re- it's a really, really elite place. And I would have been, been in this world from the age of like 12 years old of kids that are going to Ivy League schools and that are, you know, whose parents are, you know, in, in the world of, of successful upper middle class American professional life. And I would have had a certain set of aspirations for myself based upon that. Hmm. But my parents, my they were divorced, but they both weighed in on my upbringing. I was living with my mother, but I saw my father, uh, and looked up to my father, and and uh, you know uh, felt that I, to some degree, was under his, you know, uh, authority. They didn't want me to go to the lab school. They, hmm. they didn't want me to get lost in this white world yeah. of, of, of that's foreign that was completely foreign to them. They were not again, they were not uneducated, primitive people. They. My father worked his way through college at night and uh, got a, ended up with a law degree, also acquired at night from a, a law school in Chicago and made a career as a, a, a tax uh, a, a expert. Within the internal revenue service, I mean it was you know, but that world that 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 world of uh of uh prep school uh you know kind of uh whatever it was just foreign to them, and they were afraid of losing me. I was already this kind of uh uh nerdy kid that you know was kind of socially not entirely well adapted and whatnot and they were afraid of losing me, so they said, no no, no no, no, you go to the best public high school Uh, that we can find for you here on the south side of Chicago. And uh, I gave my dad's address because it was a somewhat better school. And I went to an integrated, you know, perfectly okay. Like I said, Mr. Riffel my my solid geometry teacher. He was was pretty good. You know, we did Shakespearean sonnets. I memorized stuff and I, I had Latin. I took Latin when I was in high school at this high school. It was a serious, it was okay. It was okay school. I got a pretty good education there. But again, again, I never had the sense like you have right now because kids are under such pressure. I mean, I'm teaching them at Brown university, you know, these kids who are coming in, their resumes are polished. They got, you know, they they can't stand to get a B if they get a B, they might not get the, the internship at the, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I had none of that. None of that. My goal. Once I got, you know, my situation normalized with uh, my wife and children was to get, a college BA and to uh, enroll in the management training program at RR Donnelly and Sons, where I was working at night while I was going to college, Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to go from clerk to white collar junior manager within the company. Yeah. You know, it's a good thing that I didn't do that, man, because 10 years later, the company was completely kaput (laughs) All the printing had moved to Georgia and then to to Malaysia, Uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? And all of it and, and all of that mechanism with the barrels of ink and the huge rolls of paper and whatnot had got digitized so that they don't have, you know, they, they don't, that, that business is
0: completely gone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, the story that you told, just now related to your upbringing. I think we stopped just before you you went to Boston. And I'm wondering for yourself, given you know your dad's insistence to keep you in the South Side of Chicago, to keep you in that culture, if you remember what it was like to enter Evansville and Cambridge, just culturally, what, what you recall, if anything, about just what struck you as remarkable or interesting about those places?
1: I'm interested that you were interested in that. Dan, But that's that's good. It's good. Oh, no, it was definitely major, a major culture shock. I mean, I can remember it's Evanston, 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 Illinois, that's where Northwestern is. I can remember uh, the first few months that I was going up there. Um, I mean, uh, it's a late side campus. It's Northwestern University. So it's the Midwest, you know, Harvard of the Midwest kind of thing like that. And uh, the North Shore of Chicago is a lot of rich. Many of them are Jewish, yeah. white people, you know, who, you know. So there was there was like, oh, I'm with the rich white kids, you know. But then the black kids who were there were also rich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really was like that Matt Damon character. How you like them apples? You remember that scene in the yes. bar? <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> could go into the bar and talk whatever bullshit, uh, tr- trendy pop philosophy they were talking, but but he also had uh, some street smarts about himself and whatnot. It was a little bit like that. I hung out in the pool hall. In my, in my break time between classes, I hung out in the recreation room, not the pool hall, the recreation mm-hmm. yeah. room, uh, where they had uh, pool tables because, you know, I, I was not half bad. I mean, and I was good compared to them. I mean, I was not half bad compared to those hustlers on the south side, but I was good compared to these kids walking around at the, uh, so I had my niche, I had my niche, um, and I loved the library, circular towers, two big, tall buildings sitting right on the, maybe it's three of them, I think there are three towers, they're sitting right on the water, and, um, you know, I had a library, Carol, it was quiet, believe me. Home was not quiet with yeah. two little kids running around. But the library, Carol, was quiet. But you asked me about the culture shock. And, and uh, like I said, there was a class thing and I, I had my my little niche. I'd hung out, hung out in the pool hall. I, I was I looked on with wonder and curiosity at the rich white kids. And I had deep resentment against the rich black kids. <laughs> they were cliquish. I'm sorry to say this. People would get mad at me. They were not serious. You know, I couldn't talk about anything with them except where the next party was. Yeah. You know, I was reading Nietzsche, man. (laughs) (laughs) When you read Nietzsche, you want to talk to somebody. Yeah. (laughs) So um, there was a bit of culture shock in going to Northwestern. And also, I mean, Cambridge was a completely different world. My wife and I and two kids in tow had a little 1972 Toyota Corolla. Hmm. That we drove a thousand miles from Chicago, packed it, everything in the back seat and whatnot in the trunk uh, and a little trailer. And we dragged that little trailer from Chicago to Watertown, Massachusetts, which is where we found a two bedroom apartment. And uh, I enrolled as a graduate student at MIT and I had no idea. I mean, I I knew I was good. I mean, I knew, you know, I was at the top of my class doing math at Northwestern, which is not too shabby. But I had no idea because this was, you know, this was MIT economics in the 1970s. And you could tick off the list of people. I won't bore your audience with, you know, all these uh, stellar uh, figures like Paul Samuelson and Robert Solo and Peter Diamond and Franco Modigliani and Robert Merton and, You know, these people all have Nobel honors and whatnot, and they were young. They were younger than me. They were like 45 when I was coming through there. They were at the prime or maybe a little bit past the prime of what they were doing. It was as exciting as it could get. There were there were people coming through there from uh, Moscow uh, doing, you know, advanced competitor kind of analysis. There were there were people from uh, Oxford, people from Tel Aviv, people from Delhi, People from Tokyo uh, coming, these are fellow students, uh, visiting scholars, uh, seminars that were happening. Uh, They would keep dog-eared reprints of pre-published technical papers stacked uh, by the side of the conference table in the seminar room. And in off hours, I would go in and I would just explore. There was so much, so much stuff was going on. So much was happening in in terms of developing new theory and applying new techniques and whatnot. I mean, it was beautiful. Uh, And uh, everybody, I mean, they were speaking different languages. Uh, They knew which kind of wine to order uh, and how you use the forks and spoons when they got more than one of them at the table setting. (laughs) (laughs) I made friends. People uh, liked me and, and they kind of were, you know, because we stood out. I was a married, with two kids, Black guy from the South Side of Chicago in 1972, uh, walking the halls of uh, Memorial Hall, uh, MIT's economics department and whatnot. And, you know, I stood out. So people wanted to know what was up with me and, and what was I about. So I made friends. Uh, this guy, he's dead now. His name was Pinti Kuri, a brilliant Finnish economist uh, who was uh, tall and had a big beard, shaggy hair and whatnot. And uh, we wrote a couple of papers, never got published together, but we became friends. He, you know, he took me up as a kind of uh, object of interest. And I was, you know, in, in a similar spirit, he took me to parties with the European They call them euro trash today. (laughs) (laughs) These are graduate students and and they were partying and they had, you know, they would have rented out on Brattle Street, one of these mansions, you know, that uh, they rent out for a couple of months in the summer while the people are at their summer place. You know, and I got invited to some of these parties and I started meeting these kids and a lot of Jewish kids uh, because it was very Jewish. The environment was very Jewish, the faculty and and the student body. Um, and, uh, I, I had a friend named uh, Roger Gordon, uh, working class Jewish guy from North of Boston, from uh, Marblehead which is the name of the town North of Boston. And we became really good friends. Um, he would invite me. His father would have, was a lobster guy, a guy who put out lobster traps. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not easy to get a lobster trap, uh, permit. You, you gotta have had one from your father or your grandfather having given you one. This is, this is who this guy was. This is the. Uh, family that he came from, he was but he's a very brainy guy, uh, and, and we had conversations together. And I, you know, uh, but uh, it was moving f- very fast, things were moving very fast. And my wife and I parted ways, we broke up at that uh, time in uh, my third year in graduate school at Northwestern, um, and ultimately divorced, I remarried, but uh, yeah uh it was traveling quite a bit in terms of social milieu
0: yeah i'm wondering for yourself during those times what your you know psychological state is was it just perpetual imposter syndrome or did you get the sense i belong here these are my people this is kind of what i'm meant to be doing
1: that's well said I mean, there was a little bit of imposter syndrome syndrome for me in my biography, but that maybe comes a little bit later when I got to Harvard. I mean, shit shit hit the fan. I'm a full professor at Harvard now. What am I going to do? And I, you know, I, I might have choked a little bit. We can talk about that. But when I was a graduate student, I knew I was good. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, you're with the best of the best. And then even within this group of the 30 people who have been admitted to the PhD program at MIT, you're at the front of that group. Yeah, I knew I was good. When I go to the professor's office hours, uh, I would ask interesting questions and they would respond to me in ways that made me think that I had really got a grasp of the material and, and, and was a part of the conversation. I was a part of the conversation with my uh, professors. Um, so, no, I, I didn't feel like I was in uh, you know, like I was going to get discovered not to be suitable in the next in the next instance. I felt like I had found my people.
0: Yeah, yeah. You you just alluded to this that about the Harvard story because m- my understanding about your trajectory from MIT, you became, if I remember correctly, the first black tenured economics professor in the history of that school. Um, and I believe it was at the age of thirty three. That's correct. Yeah.
1: My first job was at Northwestern. I went back to my alma mater as an assistant professor. And the woman who became my second wife, whom I met when I was in graduate school, but she had gone to the University of Michigan to teach after she left. She was a couple of years behind me. And so I moved to Michigan. So my first jobs were Northwestern as an assistant professor and then Michigan as an associate professor. But I got six years out, six years past my PhD. I got the I got the offer and I got the offer from Harvard. And uh, I moved there. It was 1982. Uh, and uh, I turned 34 year, later that year. But when I took up my position as a tenure professor of economics and of Afro-American studies, but I was a full professor of economics, voting member of the economics department. The year was 1982. I was 33 years old. That's correct.
0: In that mode, you, you, you mentioned the phrase that shit hit the fan. I'm, I'm wondering for you in the first couple of years at Harvard, what you remember what, what still resonates for you about that experience. And that, you know, that's, that is a borderline historic moment. Um, being that young, being that credentialed. What well, it's,
1: make- a, it's a big story, Dan, it's a long story. I mean, first of all, I choked on, on the technical economic side. I, I just have to say I choked. Uh, and the pressure was just tremendous, man. It was just tremendous. Uh, and and I was and here. The imposter syndrome thing maybe came. I mean, I was young. I had a strong uh, record. I had three really good top five journal papers and three more really solid next five in terms of the ranking of journal. So I had a tenurable resume anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I was black and I was a rising star in the economics profession. So, uh, of course, I was attracting the attention of a lot of people, perhaps. A little bit earlier in the trajectory of their career development than otherwise would have been the case. So I was aware of the fact that I was only 33 years old and that I I really, you know, had not yet really made my mark. I mean, my dissertation was a a big success. I could tell you about it if you're interested, but I won't bore you right now. It was a big success. Uh, One paper came out of there that became a paper in Econometrica, which is the lead journal in the field of economics in terms of mathematical economics. And another paper is still cited. These papers have thousands of citations. So this is my dissertation. So my dissertation is a hit. But what have you done for me lately? That's yeah. the question. What have you done for me lately? So what was going to be my next move? What was my next thing? You know, and I didn't yet. Ha- I hadn't uh, developed my voice fully or hadn't yet hit my stride. So I was I was an- anxious about that. Um, and uh I wasn't very productive. And the other thing that was going on was I was developing this public intellectual interest. And I was starting to write uh critical, op-ed-like, and essay-like commentaries on the larger political scene as far as race was concerned. So that was, th- but that was really just beginning. I mainly thought of myself as an economic theorist at Harvard 1982, 1983, 1984. And um I I kind of lost my way. I mean, I had a couple of projects. I didn't really believe in the projects. I didn't think they were good enough. You know, I mean, and this is where the imposter syndrome kind of thing was haunting me. So um, I was I was sort of at a crisis. I, I had two off ramps. Hmm. One was my teachers at MIT who loved me came and said, you want to come back. In effect, you want to come home. Yeah. If you're prepared, because I was beginning to do the political stuff, if you're prepared to put the political stuff kind of on the side burner and mainly focus on what we know you can do because we think you're brilliant, just focus on your work. There's a place for you here. Um, And the other off-ramp was uh, Tom Schelling. Now, both of these guys, I mean, these are, it was Bob Sola, my thesis advisor, who's a Nobel laureate, who was saying, come home. And it was Tom Schelling, who was my colleague in the Kennedy School of Government, at Harvard, who's also, he's the late Tom Schelling, who's also a Nobel laureate, who said, no, 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 there's a way you can do this. There's a way you can be the public intellectual you want to be, do as much or as little theory as you want, uh, whatever. And I had a a really interesting choice. Now, my heart of hearts as a scientist would have been, go back to MIT. I mean, what could be sweeter than to return as a full professor in the department where you were trained as a graduate student and then be an equal colleague of the people whom you had been looking up to when you were a student. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. But it would have meant to keep my uh, faith with these guys that I would have had to put down the ducky. You know, yeah. I would I'd yeah. have had to leave, leave that little side gig of what's the civil rights movement doing and why is it wrong yeah. alone. I'd have to put that on the back burner. What Tom was saying, Shelling. The late Tom Schelling, the late great Tom Schelling was saying, this is the guy who wrote the book, The Strategy of Conflict. You know, we're getting ready to go to war right now. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but I hope I'm wrong about this. But who knows what's going to happen? Okay, this is the kind of strategic crisis situation that Tom was born to analyze. I'm talking about Thomas C. Schelling, the late great economist uh, who was my mentor uh, at Harvard. And he said, "Look, the Kennedy School of Government is perfect for you. you don't have to just be an esoteric uh, uh, technical specialist talking to a few hundred people around the world about your stuff. You can talk to the entire world about yourself, but we value rigor and and we value analytics uh, we're going to put your analytics to work in the policy front so I mean you could have a philosophical debate about you know what should a, a young scientist do and how much if you're in the world that I was in, should you pay attention to your uh, to your uh, National Science Foundation research proposal and 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 you know to whatnot? And how much should you be thinking? Well, I'm going to meet with a bunch of uh, 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 government uh, officials, and they're going to tell me about what their problems are, whether it's urban governance or it's finance or whatever. And then I'm going to give them some good advice with models behind the advice. But basically, I know how to talk to policymakers as well as how to talk to the Journal editors. Uh, and that's what the Kennedy School was in his mind. And I chose that, I chose that uh, option and moved over from the Faculty of Arts and Sciences as a professor of economics to the faculty of the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University as a professor of political economy. People may not appreciate the distinction, but it's a huge distinction. Okay. Because at Harvard, there really is only one faculty, and that's the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. There were like 600 of us, and I was one of
0: them
1: as a professor. And I resigned that position and moved to the Kennedy School of Government, which was okay, you know, like the business school, venerable, like the law school. But it's not the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, not the core faculty of Harvard University. I mean, for example, I had to ask permission to be on economic students' Ph.D. committees, once yeah. I moved to the Kennedy School, because, well, you know, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences is, is the core faculty, and they don't necessarily let these interlopers who the various professional schools might hire come onto their students' committees. It's like that. But it was okay. I, I was okay at the Kennedy School. And and I, I started doing my political thing as well as uh, continuing on with, with my economics.
0: And this is the first time we're talking about your political views and your political evolution and i would imagine to make that shift that you did it must have really mattered to you right that's a lot to give up to then go pursue this what had been just a side hobby for you to allow you to speak publicly about your political assessment of the country what what did you notice you mentioned this already related to the civil rights movement at first did you see that you thought was off base that you thought needed to be explored and talked about openly um, in a way that provided perhaps a different point of view?
1: That's a good question, uh, Dan. It's very well put, actually. It started before I got to Harvard and what I saw was the civil rights movement was over. And yet people were still going around acting as if civil rights was the question. And I saw that civil rights was not the question. It started when I was at Michigan. I had moved there because the woman who became my second wife, Linda Lowry, Linda Datcher Lowry, and I, you know, took up cohabitation and ultimately got married. And she was at Michigan. That was her job. I had a choice of a lot of different jobs. I moved from Northwestern to Michigan, hmm. and we and we uh, started living together and and began our relationship that ultimately developed into a wonderful marriage. She's dead now. She. Ten years breast cancer, but we have two good uh, you know wonderful children together, two boys, Glenn, the second and Nehemiah, who are in their thirties now. and uh, anyway, it started when I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I was uh, the same guy doing theory. Harvard was in my future. Uh, I was interested in labor economics, theoretical uh, models of labor economics, but also in you know the gritty details. I read a lot of empirical papers in labor economics. I was interested because my dissertation was about the dynamics of inequality from generation to generation. And uh, there was a wonderful data source, the panel study on income dynamics at the University of Michigan Survey Research Center that Ask people questions and follow them across uh, generations and whatnot. And, you know, so I was kind of in that new year. There's a lot of policy talk. And Detroit was just a stone's throw down the road. 35 miles down the road was the city of Detroit, a laboratory going through some changes in the late 1970s and becoming, you know, a basket case. Frankly, it had been the Motor City. It had been the arsenal of democracy. It had been, you know, the center of the Rust Belt. And the Rust Belt got rusty, and it was getting rusty in the late 1970s. So I was in the midst of all of that. And the civil rights, I, 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 let me just give one example. This is just one example. John Conyers, uh, the late John Conyers, I think he passed away, uh, but served for many decades as a congressman from Detroit. He had been a labor lawyer. He was a lefty, John Conyers, uh, and and a labor lawyer, and, and uh, got himself elected to Congress in the late 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, maybe it's the early 70s, I don't know. But he was in Congress when I got to Michigan in 1979. And uh, his district, uh, crime was through the roof. He was uh, on the, the House Judiciary Committee, and he was holding hearings on police brutality. And I'm picking up the newspaper, and I'm reading about how the Detroit Police Department has deployed helicopters to monitor the routes that little girls take walking to school in the morning so as to fight the rape epidemic. And I just juxtaposed those things, okay? I thought the whole police brutality thing was a, was a sideshow. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the real issue was the collapse of order in uh, the community such that rape was an, at epidemic proportions among schoolgirls as victims. And he's not talking about that. That's just one example. That's one example. Jesse Jackson was in his prime. This was the this was early Jesse Jackson and his shakedown of corporate America based on uh, I'll have people picking in front of your offices if you don't do the following was just being honed into a tactic. And, you know, I, I mean, I saw it for what it was. Uh, I thought people had their heads up their butts. I really did. I I thought the uh, out of wedlock birth problem that Moynihan identified in the 1960s when he was 20 percent, 25 percent of black kids are born. But by the time you get to the late 70s, I don't know, it's 35 or 40 percent. And it's 70 percent now. And you're not supposed to talk about it because it's blaming the victim and it's against women and it's traditional family. And you want to take America back to the 1950s and Whatever, whatever, and what I'm saying is, <laughs> you got to be kidding me! You're talking about picketing somebody when uh, the the family is collapsing, and the, it's the the like the the social foundation of the society is 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 coming apart. This is the time that crime was going up. This is the time that the uh, achievement gap was just beginning to rear its ugly head in a serious way. Uh, the civil rights movement, I thought, in the early 1980s was a spent force. It was running on fumes. Uh, it was about m- making Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a uh, national holiday. I'm not against that. Please don't get mad at me. I'm not against that. All I'm saying is it's the 21st century and that the Chinese are coming. Yeah. And if you don't get your shit together, if your kids can't read and count, if basic institutions of social functioning are collapsing, if disorder is the order of the day in your communities and all you've got is a a lament, uh, all you've got is a finger wag. I thought, I think and thought, I mean, the tragedy here is we're a half century down the road practically and I'm still making the same argument. Yeah. But, but in any case, that argument was beginning to be fashioned in my mind. The civil rights uh, movement is a spent force. The issues confronting African-Americans have to do with our development, the raising of our children, the acquiring of skills, the disciplining of our conduct. Uh, and that, that was you know, uh, the uh, imperative uh, that was confronting. So I wrote a piece That eventually became an article in The New Republic that was published in December of 1984 when I had just moved from the economics department to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. I had made that move the summer preceding. Uh, I had become friendly with Martin Peretz, uh, the man who owned The New Republic at the time that uh, we're talking about, and he lived in Cambridge. He was a gadfly, intellectual businessman, hustler. I mean, not hustler in the Chicago sense of hustler. He was was a high class hustler (laughs) who made his his money as he made it. I mean, you know, doing the stuff that he did. Uh, A Zionist, a very strong pro-Israel guy. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, But this was Marty Peretz. And uh, he was interested in uh, this new thinking that he saw me giving voice to this critical thing. And he gave me the pages of the New Republic, which was a more influential political magazine then than it is now by far. I mean, this was before the internet. So there, there wasn't, you know, as many political magazine, I mean, before, you know, anyway, 1984 and I published this piece and it's a blockbuster piece and it really, you know, creates my reputation. And I continue to write for the new Republic well into the nineties, maybe even into the early aughts. I write, I have a long run of a relationship with the new Republic and I, I start meeting the neoconservatives. I, I start meeting Irving Kristol and Nathan Glazer and Daniel Bell and James Q. Wilson uh, and uh, you know these people. And uh they're they're all it's all about how the new uh 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 great society enthusiasm of the left has failed. You know. Uh, you thought you were going to fix it with civil rights bills. Well, no, not, not really. Uh, you know, you thought model cities and Head Start and whatnot and you were going to do it. Well, no, actually, not really. Um, you, you, you went soft on crime and guess what? You got more crime. Hmm. Uh, you're, you're afraid to actually use tests to see who's doing well and who's doing poorly in the schools. And, and by the way, affirmative action is a band-aid. I mean, these were the kind of ideas that were in the air. Uh, James Q. Wilson, the great, late, great political scientist, became a good friend of mine, uh, wrote a book uh, published in the 70s called Thinking About Crime, which was prescient. I mean, it's a kind of like the intellectual leading edge of what became, quote unquote, mass incarceration, which was a dramatic change in thinking about criminal justice policy in the United States that took place in the 70s and early 80s and that ran its course and, you know, left wreckage in its train because a lot of people went to prison, maybe more than it would have been wise to sin. But th- that's another story altogether. I was in this world, hmm. Dan. I, 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 I was this, you know, how many black conservatives are there? I mean, even today, they're not all that many. You can count them practically on one hand. Uh, and I became one of them. Uh, in the mid 1980s, after leaving technical economics as my main work, and uh, starting to develop a profile as a public intellectual uh, uh, at the Kennedy School.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna read you a a quote that I wrote down from a prior interview of yours. Um, And this, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, that this is from your uncle Alfred, um, your mother's brother. And it's right around this time in the, in the mid eighties, I think when he said this to you and he pulled you aside, I think this is also a man who you grew up with in the South side and he pulled you aside. I think you kind of revered him and looked up to him and had a, a tight relationship with him. He said, quote, son, we could only send one from the South side to MIT and Harvard. We sent you and we don't see us in anything you do.
1: That's an accurate qu- quote. And that was my uncle, Alfred, my mother's brother. And I did love him dearly. And uh, I mean, he was a rascal. I mean, he was an interesting, really, really interesting
0: dude. What did he mean when uh, by by 20- he said that to you?
1: I'm sorry, Dan, say it again. What, how did, what did I feel? It, you want to know? What, how I what, felt?
0: what did he mean when he said that to you? What was he seeing in you that he thought he needed to kind of pull you in?
1: Fight the fight. Fight the fight. I mean, the way that you'd say it today is fight the power. Fuck the police. Fight the power. Yeah. You know, fight the power. This is uh, Uncle Alfred is born in the late 1920s, and he comes of age in the 1940s in Chicago. Uh, He's an athlete. He's a a beautiful swimmer and diver. I mean, really, really talented. Uh, He's a ladies man. I mean, the dude was smooth. I mean, unbelievably smooth. Uh, He can dance. He does that jitterbug dancing stuff, man, with like they don't do it. They don't make them like that anymore. Uh, He had 22 children all together and he loved every single one of them. He worked four jobs taking care of these children, you know, multiple families. I mean, you know, it's a it would take a long time to acquaint you and your uh, viewership (laughs) with the with the the world, the atmosphere, the, the life out of which he emerged. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, always on the run because, well, he had multiple households and, and he had multiple jobs and the, and the dude was always on the run. He was not a thinker. He was a doer. Uh, again, uh, nothing wrong with his IQ, but it just wasn't kind of his thing. He wasn't bookish at all. I mean, he, you know, but, but he was soulful. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I thought, about my origin, about, you know, my family, about my roots, uh, uh, about my essence, almost. That was a part of it. I mean, that was my mother's brother. I loved my mother dearly. She's a very sweet woman. Maybe not the most responsible parent i mean we bounced around and everything but it was a close-knit family they were close uh and he was around a lot uh and and i i admired him and i wanted him to see in me the fruit of of their of their efforts you know he could i couldn't sit down and talk to him about my actual work yeah Uh, But what was it about in some larger sense? So after a while, getting accolades, getting gold stars is not enough. Okay, I got to Northwestern and I was, you know, I was doing the right thing by, you know, standing by my kids and whatnot and my young wife. And I was working and I wasn't, you know, robbing and stealing, you know, and, and whatnot. I was a good boy, not a... heists uh, and whatnot, my uh, other uncle Ad Lert, Adlert, A-D-L-E-R-T, Adlert, my mother's older brother, would speak of bodies buried in Washington Park. Hmm. Now, he would apparently, you know, there was this tradition of storytelling and exaggeration and whatnot, so you didn't know whether or not he was just exaggerating, but the fact that that's what the story was about was indicative of something about what this world was. So it was a little bit like that, but uh, I didn't, you know, this uh, uh, genius, if you allow me to say uh, my own small G, my own little special gifts. Yeah. Let me off into a completely different world, but I did not want to lose touch with, with the world that I had come from. I had to somehow build a bridge between those words to make them relate to each other. And uh, when my uncle told me, in effect, that he he didn't respect me because I was a Reagan Republican, that's basically what he was saying. Yeah. And he says, what's up with that, man? What is that? What is that? We don't see us in anything you do. Where are you going? What are you about? Have you forgotten who your people are? Uh, That wounded me.
0: Yeah. Did it change you? Did it change your beliefs or work in any fundamental way or did it just reorient you in in kind of how you wanted to talk to people like uncle alfred about subjects
1: it anguished me but it didn't uh, didn't deter me um i figured you know i gotta live my life he's lived his i wanted his uh admiration and respect but i wasn't going to uh I mean, I knew he was wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, knew he was wrong. I'm a Reagan Republican. He's admonishing me and I know he's wrong. I know a lot of people would roll their eyes at that. I thought, man, I mean, he was a guy who would say something like, you really believe the white man is on the moon? Oh, man, you got your nose so wide open that you believe in that shit. This, I mean, this is almost a quote. OK, yeah. yeah. They staged that moon landing in a Hollywood back lot. You ain't got no better sense than to know what's what's up with that, man. That's all about, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, he, he, would, he would lay on something like that. He, he flirted with the Black Hebrews. You know, the mm-hmm. Black Hebrews, these are the African-Americans who allege or assert or claim uh, that they're the lost tribe of uh, one of the lost tribes or whatever. I don't know enough about uh you know, the Jewish culture to be able to tell you exactly what they think. But but (laughs) I met some of them when I traveled to Israel years later in uh, a town called Demona. (laughs) I'm literally literally I'm not kidding. I met some people from Chicago who were African-American who were living. I don't know that they had citizenship or whatever, but they were there. In uh, Israel, because they had come home. Yeah. And and my uncle flirted with that. So it wasn't like I took him sufficiently seriously that I was going to allow his political views to influence what I was thinking. But um I I was nevertheless wounded by by that uh by the recognition that you can't go home again. That's how I finally, you know, you you everybody started someplace, but that's not if you're lucky, you you don't stay there.
0: Yeah. I want to move to, for the rest of this conversation, I want to move to now. And I think you've already said this during this conversation that, and I know you have written this in articles, that you consider yourself to be a man of the West um, fundamentally in in your intellectual orientation. And I'm wondering how your conservatism informs your views on campus now, right? You, you said this too, that you, you're a professor at Brown. Um, and I want to get into the, some of the classes that you teach there. One, one specifically, which I think is titled Free Speech or Free Inquiry, which is going through the Western canon and giving credence and respect to Western civilization, Peter Robinson, in the interview that you did with him, called you a woke buster a couple of times. And I'm wondering for yourself, how your conservatism, and you can define that however you would like, informs your openness and pushback to what you see going on in the culture and maybe more specifically on campus right now. How are those two in collision with one another? How are they an affront to one another? How do you think about that?
1: Again, a wonderful question, a really really interesting question. Uh, Let's see where to begin. So the course is called Free Inquiry in the Modern World. And, you know, the classics of Western tradition, you could spend years doing that. We touch lightly. We we do a little Plato. We do a little John Milton. We do a little John Stuart Mill. Uh, We do a little uh, George Orwell. Uh, Alan Bloom. Mm. Uh, 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 Leo Strauss. I mean, you know, it's a reading list. Vaclav Havel. Mm. Uh, we, you know, I'm a man of the West. Of course, I'm a man of the West. I mean, I just think that's such a silly argument because I'm black. I, I mean, yes, some of my ancestors. Some of my ancestors are Scottish. My name is Lowry. Some of my ancestors are from Africa. That's true. Maybe most of them. I mean, you look at the skin color. I haven't done the 23 in me. I'm not doing that because I don't live by my genes. I live by, you know, but but that's a that's a whole side story. I'm gonna let the fact that I descend from Africans deprive me of membership in this great tradition of human civilization in which I'm embedded. My father, my father's father, my father's father's father, his father, his father were born in the Western Hemisphere. They were born on the North American continent. I'm an American. I'm not anything other than or looking to be anything other than an American. Now, America is a Western country. It was founded by Europeans. Yes, they expropriated the land from the native population. That's true. That, that happens to be true. Does anybody actually want to live in the world that would have come into existence if they hadn't done it? Mm-hmm. I, I I mean, I'm really impatient with this kind of uh, 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 anachronistic Mor- morality, where you project your contemporary sensibility back onto centuries ago uh, and then come up with silly just so stories like the white people came and they stole the land from the Indians and they stole the labor from the Africans and they, you know, whatever. I mean, that the, the civilization that we enjoy here in the 21st century got built, built on a lot of stuff, including skulls crushed underfoot. That's actually true. That's the nature of the development of human civilization. It's not pretty. Okay, did I justify slavery? No, I don't justify slavery. I am a descendant of slaves, a descendant of slaves in the West, a descendant of slaves in the United States of America, the leading country on the planet. I'm wealthy beyond the wildest imagination of my grandparents. I I expect to live twice as long as people... Born 100 years ago. I mean, I don't know what these people are talking about. I'm I, I'm not a, I'm not a part of this. I'm, I'm not a Westerner. What what language do I speak? Uh, what technology do I rely on daily? Um, what what is my means of engaging with the world? Uh, this is where I am and this is what I'm what I'm about. So I'm sorry to go on so long about this, but this really, really annoys me.
0: Well, to hone in people on that, who decide that. To hone in on that specifically Pardon, about. about and I just
1: was going to say what it was please. that annoyed me. Yeah, please. People who decide uh, that they're going to, as African-Americans, as black people, quote unquote, people of color as BIPOCs. That they're going to stand aside and outside the, the milieu, outside the orbit and, and put themselves over and against and then, and then wag their fingers and carp. Um, I mean, I don't think it's serious. I, I, I actually think it's an indulgence. I think it's an ironic indulgence because it's made only made possible by the actual effectiveness of the system from which they claim to be standing apart. They're as Western as anybody else, certainly as Western as I am. As a matter of fact, the very moral matrix that they draw on to allege their criticisms, I'm talking about human rights, I'm talking about equality, equality of women, Acceptance. I mean, all of this stuff comes out of the Western tradition. You try going to a Muslim country and preaching that kind of talk. Now I'm going to be in trouble. Am I going to be in trouble for observing that the moral vocabulary of contemporary liberalism is a Western creation? Hmm. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm like I say, the Chinese are coming. Yeah. We don't have you, time for that bullshit.
0: You've already just in your... Statement just there, I think, given your take on what matters about the West. But if we could hone in on that specifically and allow you to talk about, on a high level, what you think it is that is worth remembering and cherishing about the West specifically, you know, what resonates with you just as a fundamentally as a human being what are those things what what is it about the west that matters to you
1: well these things are not only western and i'm not uh, sufficiently knowledgeable of world history to be able to give uh you know the appropriate due to all of the different strands i mean people are going to tell me mathematics and the uh, arabic and they're going to talk about the dark ages and all of that and i don't know anything about chinese civilization i don't know anything about the indian subcontinent and and you know the intellectual traditions going back The dignity of the human person. And this is partly a Christian thing, obviously, and Christianity is a Western thing. And again, people will stand a part of it. Uh, But I don't want to get sidetracked. You ask me, what was it about the West? The dignity of the human person. Uh, The idea of openness uh, such that, uh, I mean, the scientific revolution is a a monumental thing in my understanding. I'm talking about 15th, 16th, 17th century. I'm talking about the... You know, uh, the development of the scientific method, I'm, I'm talking about the uh, uh, basically victory of enlightenment over over uh, the doctrinaire uh, religious uh, authority. Uh, I mean, again, people will get mad because you make these civilizational comparisons and uh, whatnot. But uh, the th- the emancipation of what was it? gosh, four or five million, I think, was the enslaved person population of the United States in 1863 when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery was not a new thing. Slavery is a very, very old thing, antiquity, slavery. The taking into slavery of people defeated in war as a substitute for actually killing them, you saw this on the African continent. The Orlando Patterson, the historical sociologist, has a big book, Slavery and Social Death, chronicling the evolution of this institution uh, in Byzantium, uh, in Korea, uh, you know, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Slavery was not new, uh, mm-hmm. certainly not to the uh, Islamic world. Slavery was not new. Emancipation was new. The mass movement of abolition on behalf of human rights, that's new. Of course, there had been emancipated slaves since the beginning of slavery. In antiquity, slave owners would set their learned and very productive slaves, sometimes freer slaves would buy their freedom. But mass emancipation, 4 million people made citizens of the country. This is something that happens in the United States of America in the late 19th century, and it is a fruit of Western philosophical, religious, and moral development. Uh, the the so the dignity of the person, um, and uh, the power of the uh, the world transforming power of the intellectual developments in science and in uh, and so on, uh, modern dentistry. Uh, I mean, okay, we could go down the list, okay. And now it's going to sound like pro-Western cheerleading, which you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to do that. How do we know what we know about the origins of the species? I'm talking about the theory of evolution. where did that come from? What about cosmology? What about black holes? Mm-hmm. How do we observe them? How do we know what's happening? Okay, so now we're going to trace this because we observe radiation from these areas and because we can process that information because we have technical instruments that allow us to observe because we have elaborated theories. Where did they come from? Um, So uh, am I proud of being a member of this great tradition? Yes, I am.
0: Yeah. And now... You're on campus at a an elite private Ivy League school teaching this class about free inquiry. And I'm wondering, given your assessment, warts and all of Western tradition of Western canon and what it has brought to the world, what you're seeing now related to the popular, fashionable ideas that push back against the Western Canon, that are ashamed of being a part of the West, and where you think that comes from, why we're seeing that now. Um, and for people who aren't on campus, what's it like? what are you What are you seeing? on a day-to-day basis related to the the denigration of Western culture and an an inability to recognize the progress and the fruits of our labor that our ancestors have given us now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can hear my critical theory friends and my post-colonial theory friends and whatnot Getting really, really upset. I mean, I know some of these people because I I taught for years in the Wat- uh, Watson Institute for International Studies here, and have colleagues who are sociologists and and political e- uh, uh, economists and political scientists, and some of them are are very you know kind of postmodern and 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 critical theoretic in their orientation, and they would be very upset with me. But but it, I just want to acknowledge I, I hear y'all and I know y'all are out <laughs> there. And whatnot. But I think you're wrong. I mean, I, I think y'all are wrong and you can gather as much from from what it is that I'm saying. Um, I see institutional corruption. Uh, the students are not that bad. Mm. The students are being let down, in my opinion. I I, I mean, a lot of the students, are they, they they've come out of secondary schools where they've had all this propaganda stuffed into them. And they're they're very political and they're very smug and, and, uh, incurious and, uh, and, and righteous and, and politically correct. Some, many of them, many of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the fattish thing. Yeah. I'm going to say that's the fat part of the distribution. That's 40, 50% of the distribution of people who are just kind of, you know, uh, in this thing where they, they just, they, they know what's right and wrong and and it's all this, uh, uh, trendy, so-called woke, Uh, stuff, but there's a good 20, 30 percent of the kids that I'm encountering who are and and they're flocking to my classes.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And they're not all conservative by any means. I mean, few of them are actually conservative. Some of them are moderate. Uh, Many of them are on the left, but they know the difference between bullshit and somebody who's actually trying to think hard about uh, what are actually hard problems. And and they are they want to be they want to be educated. They, they, they want to be challenged. Um, and I, I think the. Uh, uh, I think that they are largely being let down. I, I'm trying to come up with an example here. I mean, it, it's been a while since we shouted down the police commissioner of police at. Uh, the city of New York, Ray Kelly. I think it was 2014 when that happened. He came here to speak at Brown. That's seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, they wouldn't let him speak. They shouted him down. And a faculty committee uh, looked at it and said, well, you know, the kids had certain motivations because after all, Kelly supports stop and frisk and stop and frisk is racist. And uh, Black kids are made to feel unsafe by that students of color in the disadvantaged, historically underrepresented communities, historically marginalized, you know, they got all this lingo. And so therefore, maybe we shouldn't allow him. I mean, not they no one endorsed the idea that he shouldn't be allowed to speak, but they they kind of looked the other way at the at the fact that uh, he had not been allowed to speak. And I, I thought that that was really a travesty. And it was like a signature event that that exposed uh, something because I thought that the heart, I mean, because <laughs> policing a city is probably one of the hardest things you can imagine tr- trying to do. And I actually don't know how to do it. Yeah. So the question is, how do you maintain order? Now this guy was coming and he had a view. uh He should have been allowed to be rebutted. We should have taken, if we think it's the wrong view, we should take it on. When, when we, don't allow for the argument to happen we we betray our you know we betray what our our calling is really so i i was just you know i was just very upset about that i'm sorry i'm 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 rambling a little bit here i'm not actually addressing your uh your core concern um i think the politicization of what we're doing at the university is is killing us i think it's killing us and um, I'm, when they call me a woke buster, I'm determined race has been my beat. That's been one of the main things that I've been talking about. Of course, my concerns extend further. I'm determined to, to, to open things up. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've, uh, I think I've been successful to do that. You know, I have over 100 enrolled in my undergraduate course on race, crime and punishment in America, and my seminar on free inquiry is oversubscribed. I had to turn away dozens of kids who wanted to take part in a 20 person yeah. seminar. They write a paper every week. You know, and they're reading John Stuart Mill. They're reading John Milton, Areopagitica. Uh, uh This is the 1640s. He's, he's arguing to the British Crown not to license the publishing of books. Um, and and they're reading, uh, they're reading George Orwell, politics and the English language, you know, I mean, he's, you know, complaining about the, the, uh, presciently complaining about the uh, corruption of, of language and the dishonesty of discourse when uh, political talk becomes uh, not analytical and uh, focus, but becomes really banner waving and sloganeering and propaganda, which is where I think, I, where I think we are.
0: I want to read a few quotes from, from that class, um, from a few of the You just froze up on
1: me a minute, Dan. Okay. Go ahead. Say
0: it again, please. Yeah. Thank you. I wanted to read a few quotes from your class, um, from that, from the assigned literature that you give to your students. Um, the first is from Plato's Apology. I prophecy to my murderers that after my death punishment for hev- far heavier than you have inflicted on me will surely await you for the noblest way of life is not to be crushing others, but to be improving yourselves. That's from Plato's apology. This one is from paradise lost. Give me the liberty to know, to utter and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. And the last one is from from Havel from the book I believe the power of the powerless in everyone yeah. there is in some willingness to merge with the anonymous crowd and to flow comfortably along down the river of a pseudo life the last quote i want to read to you and i know we're getting towards the end of the conversation is is from yeah. a an article that you wrote which is called the case for black patriotism and i'd love for you to respond in as much detail as you'd like to the quotes i just read and to this section Of this article. And this is me quoting you. I wish to make the case for unabashed Black patriotism, for the forthright embrace of American nationalism by Black people. The currently fashionable standoffishness characteristic of much elite thinking concerning Black's relationship to the American project, exemplified by the New York Times 1619 project, serves the interests rightly understood of neither the country nor of Black Americans. The America ain't so great and never was posture popular on campuses and in liberal newsrooms is a sophomoric indulgence for blacks in the 21st century. Our birthright citizenship in this great republic is an inheritance of immense value. Our Americanness is much more important than our blackness. We Americans of all stripes have a great deal in common and our commonalities can be used to build bridges undergirded by patriotism between Black America and the nation as a whole. We all finally want the same things. We want a shot at the American dream. We want each generation to to do better than the ones that came before it. We want to feel secure in our homes and and in public. We want to live in clean and orderly communities with good services. We want the government to work for us, not the other way around. We want to be treated fairly by society and our institutions. We want personal freedom so that with reasonable restrictions, we can do as we please, including the right to fail. The, li- the list of our common- commonalities goes on. Connections among various groups in America could be stronger if we, if we focused more on things we have in common than things that divide us. Those who make their living by, living by focusing on our differences believe there is something fundamentally wrong with America. They are wrong. We should resist their divisive rhetoric. It is easy to overstate the racial problems facing our country and to understate what we've achieved. I'd like wow. to close the conversation and just giving i mean I was tearing up reading that um to give you some some time to just respond to that. I don't know. you wrote that article a few months ago, but I'd love for you to to share any thoughts you have related to to those words.
1: Okay, I'll I'll do that. Uh, You started with Plato. (laughs) Apology of Socrates. Uh, He says you can kill me, but you're the ones who are actually going to end up suffering because he says, in effect, and he says actually literally in that uh, dialogue, the unexamined life is not worth living. And, you know, they they uh, execute him for so-called corrupting the youth. He's corrupting the youth because he's teaching them how to think. He's teaching them how to think because he is actually a doubter. He says that what makes me wise is that I recognize that I don't know the answers to certain questions. Most of these people running around here thinking they know the answers, don't know the answers to these questions. And, you know, he goes to his grave, but in fact, the future belonged to people who were willing to ask the, and, and, and seek the answers to questions Uh, and, and Milton and uh, you know, come on a a book lives forever. Why are you going to kill a book? You're going to, you know, a book is immortality. A book is a way that, uh, you know, you you congeal in uh, the knowledge of, of people. And uh, he, he he is insisting on freedom. And Havel is is crying from the heart. You know, he says people uh, living within the truth is really the only dignified way of living. You surrender some of your mani- your humanity when you just he says, flow along with the crowd down the river of pseudo life. I love that phrase. Yeah. Uh, because it is really easy to do. It's easy to put a Black Lives Matter sign on your lawn. You know what's hard to do? To confront the moral tragedy, the the, the, the catastrophe of violence on the streets of American cities that's taken the lives of so many uh, people. And the root of that, uh, the root of that is not only political, the root of that is cultural and it's social. It's not only economic, it's not just Racial capitalism. It's a kind of corruption of the soul. It's a it's a decay. It's it's something it's a dark, dark thing, uh, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, I love these texts. They inspire me to a certain kind of independence of my own political posture. And on the on the patriotism question, and you quote from my piece at such length. Dan, thank you. Um, I, I'm I'm I guess the line that gets it uh, to the heart of it is that our Americanness is much more important than our blackness. And I believe that that's true. Yep. And, and I think we, we're we're playing a, a child's game by by not recognizing it, that it, it's a kind of. Uh, tantrum, we, we, you know, we, we're going into a corner and we're going to just throw a fit Uh and, and the fact that it's indulged, you know, if what I what's on the tip of my tongue here will probably get me into trouble. What about duty? What about honor? What do we owe this great country? Um, the people who. Again, anything I say here is going to get me in trouble. Uh, I have much more in common with the working class American who grew up on. The north side of Chicago and not the south side of Chicago in those same decades in the 1950s and 60s than I do with somebody in Guatemala or Salvador who wants a better life. And I don't blame them for wanting it and wants to walk across the border of the United States to find it. Um, When you say people of color. And you appropriate the struggle of African-Americans on behalf of our full membership as citizens of this republic. Uh, on behalf of the rights to um, asylum of people who want a better life. And you call that civil rights and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the people who want the border are racist. I mean, I I think a big mistake is being made. Uh, So, I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm after. Clearly, I have not yet got my thoughts entirely sorted out on the matter. But our Americanness, birthright citizenship in this republic, it means something. The reason we we live in a world of nations, that there's no world court that's going to resolve the uh, concerns that I have about the quality of education in Chicago or St. Louis or uh, what's going on in a housing project in Baltimore or uh, whatever. We have to work it out here. That's why I oppose reparations. I I just think it's completely wrongheaded to set ourselves apart from the country and and to try to strike a deal. I I think we have to put our house in order and that's the American house. And if we do that, uh, people at the bottom of the society who happen to be of color will get their due.
0: Yeah. Glenn, this was such a... a Pleasure and an honor for me to talk to you. And I want to just say how much I appreciate your willingness to explore these subjects and to your openness to be firm on your take about America today. And, you know, your story, I feel like I'm talking to somebody who has lived that American dream, right? Which has nothing to do with race and everything to do with some innate human desire to self-actualize and to be able to live out your life in a way that is exemplifying your own talents and abilities to the best of your ability. And that
1: kid, excuse me for interrupting, Dad. Please no, I, I was just going to say the kid that we started out with, you know, the precocious kid gets his girlfriend pregnant, ends up working in a printer plant, and whatnot. He has been to I don't know how many dozens of countries I've taught summer school in Bogota. I've given lectures in Indonesia, Bali. I've, I've uh, been at the Delhi School of Economics. I've been at the London School of Economics. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in Seoul, Korea. I have graduate students all over the world. My papers are read by people on every continent. Uh, you know, so that's how far I've traveled uh, as an American. Uh, That's what's possible, given some talent, some luck, and some opportunity for us to make of ourselves here. Uh, I'm not just a Black guy.
0: I'm an American. Yeah, I think that's a good place to close. And I want to thank you again for committing yourself to what you think is beautiful in this country. I think you and I share that probably in spades and um it's just been a real honor to be able to do this and to meet you and to talk to you in such detail um so thank you glenn thank you for everything thank you for everything that you do thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking if you're finding value in this podcast please consider supporting the show via the links below on venmo paypal or patreon your support helps to make these conversations possible